0: You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Boll, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. The Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, IDEA, calls for a free, appropriate public education, or FAPE, that is tailored to an individual's needs. Yet what does this really mean from a legal perspective? What are its limits? Well, over time the courts have helped define the boundaries or limits of the IDEA through various cases. Today, I speak with attorney Rebecca Didums about two specific court cases, Timothy W versus Rochester and Andrew F versus Douglas County School District. These cases helped set a standard for what services a student with a more severe need is eligible to receive. Enjoy the conversation. Rebecca Didums, thanks so much for joining me on the program today.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you here. And we're going to talk about legal stuff, more technical stuff. Traditionally on the show, we tend to talk about things like speech therapy or applied behavioral analysis or something, but now we're going to get into the law. So thank you for hanging out with us to do that.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: So we're going to talk about... The impact of, or the impact of a couple court cases on delivery of services, particularly to students with more severe needs. And there's two Mm -hmm. cases we're going to talk about. The first one is Timothy W. And the other one is Andrew, starting with an E, not an A. Uh, Can you tell Mm -hmm. us about Timothy W. and what impact that had on establishing services?
1: Sure. Um, So Timothy W. uh, For those who who know a little bit more about the court cases, there are some that cover the entire nation, those are the Supreme Court cases, and some that just cover a part of the country. Timothy W. was one of those. It was First Circuit, that includes New York, Um, but it was really, really persuasive. Um, So Timothy W. was a case, a little boy with very significant disabilities, um, infant functioning level, and the school district was arguing that he was not going to be able to benefit from services. He was basically too disabled to benefit, so they didn't have to provide him any services. Uh, And the court in Timothy W. said, absolutely not. They established a zero-reject policy, or I should say, emphasized the zero-reject policy that already existed um, in IDEA uh, and stated in their language, all handicapped children, regardless of the severity of their handicap, are entitled to a public education.
0: Yeah, Can you tell us about the IDEA a little bit? Give us a little history on that.
1: Sure, sure. Um, So IDEA or the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, it has gone by other names in the past, but it is a federal law, so it covers all the states and says that all children, regardless of their disability, are entitled to a free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And that means that to the maximum extent that's possible, these kiddos should be educated with their typically developing peers.
0: So it seems pretty clear. So what made the district think it could, in a sense, go against that? I guess they were providing services or allowing the child to go to school, but not necessarily providing services to more severe-needed children. Is that what it was?
1: Uh, I believe that's correct, that they didn't believe that this child needed to be provided an IEP because they thought he wasn't going to be making any progress. Um, I'm sure it came down to finances. This was not going to be one of the... The easier kids to meet the needs for, mm-hmm. um, and if I knew the reasons behind some districts' decisions, I'd be doing a lot better. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, and this took place a little while ago, right? When was Timothy W? Um,
1: the court case uh, in the First Circuit was 1989, so okay. this was a few decades back.
0: Okay, got it. And so, it's, so they weren't even given IEP. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know it was down to that level. Right. All Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Things move forward, and then now we have Mm -hmm. another case that was decided in 2017, Andrew. And what did that do as compared to what happened in Timothy W.?
1: Okay, so Andrew is another case with a student with more significant disabilities. Uh, This student was not on diploma track. They were on alternative curriculum. And what was important here is that the court was responding to The previous standard from Third Circuit actually decided by Gorsuch when he was presiding over Third Circuit Mm -hmm. that said merely more than de minimis progress is acceptable. And that's legal language. So what does that mean? De minimis means more than nothing. So they're saying something more than a little bit more than nothing is good enough. And in Andrew, the Supreme Court, so laying down the law for all of the states, said, no, that's not good enough. We need to do better for our students. Uh, And the language that they said is that the school must offer an IEP that's reasonably calculated to enable a child to make some progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. Mm -hmm. Again, it's still vague. We're talking about so many different kids with different levels um, of of disability, of impact, that it's difficult to lay out certain goals and objectives that they will reach. But the language that it was so good is that they said that all students must have appropriately ambitious goals in their IEP. Um, Whether or not they're going to be progressing from grade to grade, their IEPs need to be appropriately ambitious.
0: So uh, that's basically then down to whatever their abilities are, make something ambitious from there based on everybody's individual circumstance.
1: Absolutely. Which is kind of how it should be anyways. Right, right. So a lot of this court case for parents must seem like, well, duh, we've known that for years. Um, But it's the legal system getting around to what we already know.
0: (laughs) Right. But that was a unanimous decision, so I'm surprised that uh, it wasn't maybe established earlier regarding that on the way up to the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah. um, The last real guidelines on the level of support that needed to be provided was back in 1982 with Rowley, um and that was saying reasonably calculated to enable the child to receive educational benefits really vague and so the states worked with that for a while um but it didn't give them a lot to work with so they started creating their own more specific standards and it was very piecemeal a little bit here a little bit there you could have a much better iep if you went to one state than if you went to another and so finally um there was a a case that made it up to the Supreme Court, and they decided to set this appropriately ambitious standard for all states.
0: Okay, so the language seems clear now. And then the next question people are going to have, or parents are going to have, is okay, so what? What does that mean uh, to my child, especially if they have more severe needs? Before it was just minimal or de minimis project, pro- progress, excuse me, but now it's appropriately ambitious. So what would the difference look like, do you think, if I was a parent asking for services?
1: So in My practice, I have been using Andrew to argue for more ambitious goals and better goals, um, goals that cover more of a child's needs. A lot of times we see IEPs where there is one speech goal, even though a child might have deficits in four different subsets of speech, or you might see one physical therapy goal that they can use their adaptive seating equipment. So we want to see more rigorous goals that then drive the services. Um, And then we're looking to see kids getting more services and a better quality of services from this so they can meet their appropriately ambitious goals.
0: So from a parent's point of view, is it as simple as like walk into the room and I go, hey, well, Andrew says now my child gets more services. Are the districts, is it clear to the districts that there's an expectation of change? Or is it something that you're going to end up having to hire a lawyer to help argue about? I guess, is it sort of an established norm yet or not?
1: Um, It's getting there. Um, And of course, every IEP team is different. Uh, You have some that are definitely on top of the legal minute and want to make sure that they're adhering to every new change. Mm -hmm. But I've been into an IEP where I said, well, you know, Andrew says these goals have to be appropriately ambitious. And the physical therapist whose feet I was putting to the fire looked confused. So the assistant principal kind of sighed and turned to her and said, well, here's what Andrew is. Um, So it really varies on how (laughs) this information gets out to the actual ground level IEP team.
0: Okay. But you're seeing success already is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there, there's some variation, but at the IEP level, if parents are able to explain, here's the there's a new standard, it's the appropriately ambitious standard for mm-hmm. all students, and that's what I want to see for my kid, that should start a conversation, absolutely.
0: All right. Were you surprised that it was a unanimous decision or did you expect maybe a more split court on this?
1: We were, the entire special ed law community was on Tenderhooks uh, waiting for this decision. We we really weren't sure how it would go. You know, we all knew how we wanted it to. Um, but we we didn't think it was going to be quite as much of a landslide. We're happy that it was. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> that's good. Does that have a greater impact, do you think, on the lower courts when they see that it's a more forceful decision that's come through when it's unanimous versus a split decision? I-
1: I think it does. You don't have then lower courts drawing from the dissent opinion saying, well, here's this other idea. Um, But regardless of how many judges decided, or justices, I should say, decided this, it's now the law for all 50 states, which is what we're so excited about, that it's not this piecemeal of different districts anymore. It's the entire country. All right, we're on the same page. We need appropriately ambitious IEPs and that's what's so exciting.
0: Yeah, that is exciting. Let me ask you, turn it a little bit here. You work for a group called the Lanterman Center, right? That's right. Can you you tell us a little bit about that and how that works and how it benefits uh, students?
1: Sure. So uh, the Lanterman Regional Center is one of 21 regional centers in California. Um, They're state-mandated organizations that provide cradle to grave services for people with developmental disabilities. Um, and we work with a law clinic that contracts with Lanterman as a vendor. Um, and this enables us to provide free of cost legal services to clients of Lanterman, um, to help them work through special education, legal issues, um, going with them to negotiate at IEP meetings if they need complaints written, things like that.
0: So, yeah, at what point would they necessarily contact you? Is there an expectation they'd work on their own for a little bit or go to an advocate maybe prior to reaching Um, out to you? Or is it individual for each case?
1: So we do, one of the unique things about us is that Um, we have half law students who serve as advocates and then, uh, half attorneys. So a lot of our cases actually do have an advocate assigned to them, which means then in the IEP meeting, the school can't bring their attorney. We like to keep the, the weight on the parent's side. Um, so they definitely don't have to work with an advocate first, but we like to see that the parent has tried to resolve the issue on their own. So that could look like a a request that has been denied, um, or just radio silence um, in response to a letter they may have submitted. Uh, We don't like to take on cases when parents just have sometimes a justifiable fear that something's going to go wrong in the next IEP meeting. Um, And that's because we really understand how important that relationship is between the district and the school uh, and, and the parent. And we want them to work through things on their own, if at all possible, first, because we know bringing in an advocate or an attorney can kind of change the dynamic.
0: Yeah, that's always a question I have. Do you feel like there's a significant impact on that? Like for my wife and I, we never had to hire an advocate or anything. So we ended up getting the services Mm -hmm. we we thought we should get, but we were both teachers as well. So we had an advantage Mm -hmm. and we kind of knew how the system worked. But developing relationships and keeping those to us was the 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 primary thing to do, and how much do you think bringing mm-hmm. in an, an advocate or an attorney disrupts that, or perhaps even makes it worse? Because you can say, "Hey, you need to go do this for my child," but if the teacher or the therapist really isn't into it, it's not going to happen.
1: Right, um, and so again, that's why we really emphasize the, the same way: parents trying on their own first, bringing in an advocate or an attorney definitely makes everyone in the room sit up a little bit straighter. And also be more careful about the words that they're going to say um it brings in a little bit of a confrontational attitude to the iep meeting um when i go into iep meetings my style is not confrontational it's absolutely uh-huh. let's get together and see if we can come to an agreement for the benefit of this kiddo which we're all here for um but districts have this idea that anytime there's an advocate they better be preparing for due process or or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it does heighten it. But we do have some parents. We serve a lot of parents who um, are not English-speaking. Over 60% of our parents uh, live in poverty. They have a lot of other risk factors as well. And so they've been trying to work with the district and not making any progress. One of our advocates goes into the IEP meeting, and multiple times they've told us, that's the first time the district has ever listened to me. You know, and, and suddenly they realize their voice is being heard through an advocate. Um, so it does change it, but sometimes it's so necessary. So it, it really depends on, on the case, how things have been going, how receptive the district is, and, and willing to work and respect uh, the parents.
0: Yeah, I did want to ask about that. I, mean, we're just, I guess we're going off in a little bit of a different direction here, but how much of an impact do you think a, a parent's education or ability to speak English has in regards to how much, how much they can get services? And I mean that in, when you go into an IEP meeting, do you think the district is thinking, we, I can give service level A, B, or C, let's see what we can get away with and give level C, and if they don't push back, we'll keep it at that. Is it, is it, do you think something like that happens?
1: I I think so. We definitely see the district um, taking more advantage of parents who um, are not English speaking, who may not be as familiar with their rights. Um, I've been fortunate enough to develop my Spanish to the extent that I can translate in IEP meetings, so I know a lot of times the translation's not accurate. These parents aren't even getting the full information uh, with the school provided translator. Um, And so, There's also a a culture, especially with parents who may be new to the United States, there's a culture of respect for the district and this um, assumption that the schools, the teachers, the principals want what is best for their child. Mm -hmm. And shifting that idea to they may not be giving me everything that I have a right to. I can ask for more. Sometimes that can be a big leap of faith. Uh, We do also have some districts that do take advantage of the situation um, and use a person's immigration status uh, or other risk factors that they have to intimidate them, to bully them, um, which is, of course, unfortunate, and we see more with those minority populations.
0: Is is that a a legal tactic for a district to mention or threaten or implicitly discuss immigration uh, status?
1: Absolutely not um so it's well established that students regardless of their immigration status are mm-hmm. entitled to a public education um, and there can be absolutely no discussion of that um so if if parents are th- uh, are threatened with immigration status or sometimes we have uh, the Department of Child and Family Services child neglect accusations that's illegal retaliation, and we reach out um, to the Office of Civil Rights and file a complaint based on that. Parents can absolutely not suffer any retaliation because they're enforcing their legal rights.
0: Okay, got it. Well, I'd like to finish up a little bit here just kind of asking about you. Now, you know, you're an attorney, maybe you could have gone off and sued tobacco companies and be driving, I don't know, (laughs) seven different Porsches right now. Why are you working with uh, these families who have children with special needs? What drew you to that?
1: When I entered law school, I had this somewhat Pollyanna idea that I wanted to only represent people who are innocent. Um, if I was going to be a defender, I was going <laughs> to only somehow find the innocent clients. Sure. Um, and
0: read a good novel about it, but go on.
1: <laughs> right, sure. Uh, that, that would be a, a good Lifetime TV series. But representing kids with disabilities is about as close as it comes. These are, are kids who, through absolutely no fault of their own, are at a difficult situation. And what, what can be sometimes frustrating about special ed law is that the law itself is good. It's the compliance that's kind of crummy sometimes. Um, so being able to go in and help these these families to get what they're legally entitled to and to see that change in a child's life Um, to see the opportunities that open to them that might not otherwise have been offered is is really, really powerful for me.
0: Rebecca Didums, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's been lovely talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.